welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Ron. And I'm Lindsay. We're on a mission from somebody to review the Blues Brothers, starring John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, James Brown, Cab Calloway, Ray Charles, Carrie Fisher, Aretha Franklin, and Henry Gibson, along with a bunch of cameos from other musicians and comedians of the era. Directed by John Landis, based on characters created for a recurring sketch on Saturday Night Live by Belushi and Aykroyd. Notable that in 2020, this film was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant, end quote. Is it? I guess that's what we're here to talk about tonight. Lindsay, this was your idea. So what's your background with Blues Brothers? So I had seen bits and pieces of Blues Brothers you know, off and on most of my life, it would play on TV every now and then I'd catch five minutes here, 10 minutes there. I didn't watch this movie in its entirety until the night that I suggested it to you guys. (laughs) We were visiting some family and it was on TV and there were a couple of us who had never seen it. And everyone was like, well, we have to watch this whole movie. And we did. And then I watched it again about a week and a half, two weeks later to to prep for this and actually pay full attention to it. <laughs> All right. Ron, what about you, man? I am a longtime Blues Brothers fan. I used to watch uh, Saturday Night Live reruns on Nick at Night, including one of the favorite ones was the uh, Blues Brothers when they showed up in the bee suits and did King Bee. Uh, so I was a, a fan of the act before I knew about the movie. And then I went and saw the movie because it always aired on VH1. I've seen it. 30 times probably because they aired it like every week. So uh, I couldn't tell you my background to it because it seems like something that's always been a part of my life. That's outstanding. Well, my story with this one is similar to yours. I got all the way to college having never seen two movies, Animal House and this. And when I said that to one of my dorm mates, um, her exact words were, oh, we're fixing that right now. And so there was a Friday night, a bunch of us just huddled around. This was back in the days when you had the community room, right? I think they may still have those. I don't know, but it had the big TV in it because most people didn't have like a, you had like a small TV maybe in your dorm and popped in the VHSs and watched them both back to back down there that night, just kind of, you know, doing nothing. And I had seen this skit, you know, cause I've seen the reruns on Saturday Night Live and I, I was kind of aware of it, but I didn't you know, know it or anything. And I watched it and I was like, okay, this is really cool. And growing up where I grew up right across the river from Muscle Shoals, there's all that R and B and soul music and stuff. So it's, it, I mean, I knew all the songs and I kind of knew all the the stuff for it. And I don't know, I just, I dug it and I have never seen it again since 1995. Like I had not, I'd seen be, you know, be on and stuff, but I never sat down to watch it again because a uh, real shock um, for anybody that's listened to film strip for more than eight minutes, broad comedies are not really my go-to. Um, it's not that I hate them. I just don't seek them out and watch them. Uh, and musical comedies that where it's not like musical theater translated or whatever, like there's, there's like a thin line on like what I dig on those. Like I have a high regard for like that thing you do and then spinal tap and then everything else I just sort of fall apart on. So blues brothers, I, I hadn't spent a ton of time around, 
but it was fun to go back and look at it again and you know being a lot older now and still loving a lot of the same music and watching it and just watching the tour de force that was John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, or maybe I should say the train wreck that was John Belushi and the tour de force that was Dan Aykroyd and imagining John Landis's job to try and make that a thing. And, you know, just broadly for a minute, Saturday night live skits turned into movies are incredibly hit and miss. Like most of the time it wears out about an hour into it if they get that far. Right. And I'm always amazed that this one has held up as long as it has. That's a good point, because even the movies that were hits right when they came out, based on the SNL skits, don't have this kind of staying power, I feel like. Like, where'd Superstar go? Anyone remember that one? Oh <laughs> Molly Shannon. Yeah. <laughs> so, or, or not at the Roxbury or whatever, yeah. right? So, Coneheads. Yeah. yeah. Well, Cone Coneheads was good. I think from this era, SNL turning their skits into movies was, I mean, why not? You know, why not give it a shot? Because, again, in 1980, John Belushi was about as big a com comedy star as you could find. And Aykroyd was really well regarded, too. And he and Landis had done stuff together and would continue to work together for years. So, I don't know. It's, it's interesting to see how this one came to be. And by all accounts, like putting this movie together and making it was one of it's not the worst thing John Landis ever did, as we all know, but it is one of the toughest things he ever got you know, put on celluloid. But he his movies have a look and a sheen and a style to them that even though they're very much part of the 1980s, they don't date terribly. Like there's something very clean about the way his pictures look like I look at this and then I can watch something like Trading Places, which I think is one of the best things ever from the era. And they look almost like they're they're shot by the same camera. Like the, uh, there's something about it that the old film stock and everything, it, just looks, it looks good. And I don't know if they've done any, you know, I watch this on Peacock. I don't know if they've done any touch-ups on it or not, but it, it looks good in HD. Yeah. I also watched it on Peacock and I have it on Blu-ray and I, you're, you're right. It, it does have a very specific look that you do see in a lot of John Landis' stuff that keeps it from feeling its age. And I think part of that is because they spent the equivalent of $86 million on this movie. <laughs> yeah. So there was definitely budget to throw around. Yeah. We, we didn't talk about the budget. But, they threw a lot of money at this one. So. But I will push back on one thing. This movie was kind of a gamble. Now it had been the subject of a bidding war prior to it being created. But when Dan Aykroyd sat down to write it, he had no idea how to write a script. So John Landis had to rewrite this script from like page one. Number two, by this time, Belushi had already left Saturday Night Live and he'd already done 1941. And both of those things put a dent into that Animal House luster that he had. Yeah. So it was it was a bit of a tall order. And also, uh, you know, everybody knows Belushi was famously debilitated by cocaine at this point, And like spectacularly so by the point of this movie where they asked to the point where they asked Carrie Fisher to keep an eye on him. And that's saying something. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's if, Carrie, if Carrie Fisher is sober sister in these days, that <laughs> wow, that was something. So <laughs> bless her heart. Um, and this is like the height of her Star Wars fame too, man. So this is definitely a, a left turn for her because this is right before Empire Strikes Back comes out, which is a much bigger movie for her than the original Star Wars. So, Also, she says maybe three lines in the movie and she makes an indelible impression just with her face. Yeah. So it's, yeah. It's, a, it's incredible. 
Yeah. And, and by all accounts, too, she did a lot of punch up on the script. That was something she spent years as in Hollywood after her acting star faded was doing a lot of script work and script doctoring. And she did a lot of work on this because Landis it, will tell you he can organize a script. He's not funny. And Aykroyd is funny, but he doesn't know how to write like the with punch at least not at this moment and so he you you gotta have somebody who knows how to how to deliver a joke and carrie fisher was the one to do that so it's kind of cool to, to think about um it's also kind of i don't know slightly morbid to think about all the people that aren't with us anymore that are part of this movie like there's a lot of people and it. it's not just because it's you know 41 years old at this point by the time we're recording this but there's a lot of folks that have moved on uh, in in the world uh, or to the next world whatever you want to want to say uh there and i don't know it's, it's different to go back to something like this that again doesn't feel so dated but then you realize like oh like three-fourths of the cast is gone to look at it and think oh yeah this was filmed in the way way well not in the way way back machine but this was filmed in the 80s it doesn't look like it it doesn't feel like it and wow that actor looks really familiar is that is that carrie fisher you yeah. know like in her heyday and you're just not i don't know i had to do some mind gymnastics there with that one for sure well and, and it's funny because if you start trying to figure out who each character actor is, you're going to be doing a lot of mind gymnastics. Because <laughs> this yes. movie's just littered with people that yes. have done cool stuff. Yes, yep. yes. I mean, it, it is a peppering. And that's one of the things about these kind of movies is, in a lot of ways, it is just, let me call all my friends and you know, we'll get them down in for nothing. You know, and, and they spent a lot of money. They didn't really pay the actors that much. They paid Belushi. Uh, but everybody else got a pittance to do this. It, it was all the sets and all the music that they had to license and stuff, which my wife got a kick out of because working in licensing, she was like, I cannot imagine how much this cost them to do. I was like, oh, yeah, I think Ray Charles got paid. James Brown got paid. Like every, yeah. all the musicians got got the dough because that soundtrack is killer. Um, but nowadays, like you, you wouldn't dare. Uh, try to put something out like that without, you know, pre-selling 40 copies of it ahead of time. This was way ahead of like the Forrest Gump soundtrack and all that kind of stuff. And it just looked like they all had so much fun doing every single scene. Yeah, it, it, it's one of those movies where you can definitely tell like, so when they were making this movie, they literally had built a blues club on set for the cast to hang out with. That was a stocked bar full of people who also could get whatever drugs you wanted. So this set was a party and everyone is having a real good time. And, it, and that's clear from like the very first frames. Oh, yeah, co completely. And I guess before we get any further into it, though, Ron, why don't you tell folks what is the plot of Blues Brothers? And as I wrote in the notes, good luck. Yeah, for a movie that's. Uh, you know, two hours and what, 12 minutes long. It, they pack a lot into that two hours and 12 minutes, which makes me wonder just how crazy that original script was or the original cut, uh, the two hour, 30 minute cut that they gave to the studio that the studio hated. I would love to see that someday, but yes, the plot summary of blues brothers is as follows. And forgive me. There's a lot of stuff that happens. So I probably skipped over stuff three years into a five year stint in Joliet prison. Jake blues is out on the street and looking for something to do with his life. He's picked up by his brother only to discover that the Cadillac is gone, the band is kaput, and there's nothing out there for him except guilt and obligation. To make matters worse, the orphanage where the brothers grew up is going to be shut down due to not paying taxes, leaving the brother's best friend and father figure Curtis out on the streets. He advises Jake to get right with God and get to church, and inspired by the Reverend Cleophus James, Jake has a mission. 
get the $5,000 to save the orphanage by getting the band back together. On the way home, after discovering their mission from God, the brothers run afoul of some police officers, which they eventually evade by driving through a mall. That's right, they drive through a mall. Later, Jake and Elwood retire to Elwood's Flophouse, a Flophouse which is promptly attacked with a rocket launcher by a woman who seems to have an axe to grind against Jake. Join the list, lady. The next day, the Flophouse explodes, brought down by the mystery lady's planted explosives, just before the cops could catch the Blues Brothers. The brothers find most of their rhythm section playing in a depressing holiday inn, and go on a trek throughout Chicagoland to reunite the rest of the band, finding their horn player working in a fancy restaurant. As if they didn't have enough problems getting the band deck together, the brothers drive through an Illinois Nazi rally on the way to get the guitar and sax players working in a soul food restaurant run by Aretha Franklin. After getting Blue Lou and Matt Guitar Murphy, the brothers hit up Ray Charles Music Store and pick up equipment. The only problem is they don't have a gig lined up. Enter Bob's Country Bunker, where the R&B sound of the show band falls flat until Rawhide and Stand By Your Man come to the rescue. Unfortunately, the real band that was supposed to play, the good old boys, are led by Kentucky boy Charles Napier, and he doesn't take too kindly to people stepping on his gigs. After setting up a gig at a palatial ballroom, thanks to some help from Maurice Lyon, who's played by Steve Lawrence of Steve and Edie fame, the brothers hit the streets with the help of adorable orphans, set out to pack the ballroom, raise the money, and somehow avoid getting killed by their many enemies. The night of the gig, all the forces aligned against the Blues Brothers connect. Cops, Nazis, Rednecks, and Carrie Fisher, all looking to pulverize Jake and Elwood. A meeting with a friendly record executive gives them a tip on how to escape, and they're almost home free before Carrie Fisher returns with an M16. Bullets fly everywhere, but due to cartoon physics, the brothers are unharmed as Jake unfurls his charm and a string of nonsense excuses to leave Carrie Fisher swooning and give the brothers another chance. They've got 106 miles to go to Chicago, half a tank of gas, it's dark, and they're wearing sunglasses. What follows is the most incredible car chase in movie history, running through the, throughout the city of Chicago as the brothers try to get to the Cook County Assessor's Office and Steven Spielberg in order to save the orphans with money from the concert. After literally, literally, after literally driving the wheels off the car, the the ah, crap. After literally driving the wheels off the car, the brothers run upstairs, pay off the tax debt, and save the orphanage just in time to be arrested by cops, the National Guard, tanks, firefighters, dogs, and pretty much everyone who carries a badge in Illinois. Sure, the brothers end up going back to jail, but as the band runs through a ripping version of Jailhouse Rock, we're reminded that it's never too late to mend as credits roll. That's an excellent plot summary, and all I'm going to say is cops, Nazi rednecks, and Carrie Fisher is a great tagline for this show. Uh, so as we get into it, because there's a lot that goes down, like you say, and I, you know, I think the thing that I notice immediately is John Landis has this director's touch, and Lindsay, you probably know more about what this is called with your background in acting and stuff, but like every scene seems to breathe like there's not this rush to get to a lot of dialogue it just sort of everything kind of you just get a chance to look at all of it and take it in before it happens and i don't know if either of y'all noticed that but it, i really noticed that this time and i got to thinking about the landis flicks i've seen they kind of all do that i think you said it perfectly they're letting it breathe taking their time but it still has motion to it so you've got this dichotomy of this scene that feels like it's moving faster than it is, and it keeps this constant interest going. 
So the viewer's constantly engaged with what's going on, and there's really never a dull moment in the movie. Yeah, I mean, they walk Jake from what seems like Goldberg's dressing room to the ring, like the longest wind-up to get out of prison ever. And I mean, how many times have you seen that in a movie? And I got to thinking about it. I was like, okay, by 1980, how many getting out of prison, picking you up movies, you know, had there been? There's a lot. And I, I immediately thought of one. I was like, hmm, The Getaway is it has a really long opening of Steve McQueen getting out of prison, but it's intercut with a lot of stuff. There's lots of Sam Peckinpah and you know, he's he's the original Michael Bay, you know, cutting stuff to heck and back. And instead, it's just door to door to door to door. And the thing that, you know, I think you think Blues Brothers, right? You think of all the music, right? There's no music in this for a good 20 minutes. Like, it takes a while for him to, to crank up the stereo. And it's all about setting up these two guys. And I think Dan Aykroyd finds something here playing Elwood that, I don't know, Ron, I think it's cool because he he's playing the straight man. And Dan kind of always got to do that, even though he's incredibly funny. I think he realized the people around me are probably funnier and I can keep this blank face and just be this stoic, you know, look ahead through my sunglasses guy. And I don't know, he, it, it, it brings you in immediately when he's you know picking up Jake from prison. Well, it's the Leslie Nielsen thing, right? If you don't react to it, it makes it even funnier. And the, the more he can stone face through this movie, I mean, it's jumping ahead a little bit, but but he's literally dancing with no facial expression later in this movie. And it's the funniest dancing in the world. (laughs) But the fact that it doesn't touch his face makes it even funnier because it's like his body is moving independently of his brain. Yes. Yes. His face, his head never moves, but the rest of it's just this rubber man jumping around. It feels a lot like uh, Conan O'Brien. When you see Conan (laughs) O'Brien, do like the same dance. That's that good. It is, yeah. It's very, very much Conan. That's good. That's a good call. Yeah, but, I, yeah. You're, yeah. you're right. He definitely has. Uh, he's definitely doing the straight man role. But if you don't have somebody to bounce the jokes off of, it's not as funny. If everyone's trying to be hilarious all the time, it's not as funny. And he right. wisely gets out of John Belushi's way mm. and gets out of the way of even like Charles Napier, who delivers one of the funniest lines in this movie. And that Charles Napier is definitely not a comedy guy. But like throughout this film, it's the fact that uh, Elwood just acts like nothing they're doing is abnormal. Yeah. That like really is, makes it even funnier to me. Yeah, it's just that everything that happens, he's completely nonplussed by all of it. Explosions, car wrecks, you know, finding your band in the Holiday Inn, all of these things. None of it gets his blood pressure up at all. And that I think that's part of the, the shtick for him is that the other blues brother is always the, the high energy type. You know, they went from Belushi to Belushi's brother to like John Goodman did a stint and the totally forgettable blues brothers, 2000. Sorry, John, but it's, I don't know. It's, it's neat to watch him work and again, watch off of Belushi. And then you watch Belushi, Belushi, who is just this, I don't know how to describe it. It's this this manic ball of insanity <laughs> sitting next to him in that junky police car. And just to watch him go like, what happened to the freaking car, man? <laughs> you know, and, and he's just like, I had to let it go. You know, it's it's all just so you know, blah dialogue, but it's hilarious to watch the two of them work together. And you can tell these guys had done this kind of routine for years together. Yeah. I love that I had to let it go. Why'd you let it go? I bought a microphone. 
oh yeah, I'd probably do that too. Or whatever his line was right after that. And it was like, okay, I see. I see where this is going. This is great. And I love going back to like Dan Aykroyd's like just the straight face when Belushi's freaking out over the car. And he just like puts it in. I don't know what he did, but just jumped that bridge that (laughs) that was opening up. And he was like, that'll do. That'll do. Yeah, he lays out like the engine block. It's like yeah. it's an old police car. It can get going, you know. And that's that's what's funny though, because I mean that's a known thing. The police cruisers are souped up. They always mm-hmm. are. And yep. uh, so you know, if you want to you want to jump a raising bridge, um, a la Maximum Overdrive and Smokey and the Bandit and fifty thousand other movies, you know, Cannonball Run, all these movies did this kind of stuff. It's great. I, I think it's neat too. That I know it's jumping ahead a little bit, Ron, but you mentioned that great car chase scene and stuff. I mean, I think car chases in cinema up to that point all lived to bullet Steve McQueen's bullet. And then they all sort of chased that for years. And then this movie came along and then like Smokey and the Bandit and like those movies. And that changed the car chase scene forever in Hollywood. And they don't do them like that anymore. I mean, um, you know, Fast and Furious, it's all CGI and they got a tank and you know, all this insane stuff. But to see it as a practical, that's the other thing, too, is you're watching a movie that is 100 percent practical effects. And that's I mean, not only to be quaint, but it's kind of fun to think how in the world did they pull that off? You know, and how many cars did they wreck doing that? 103 to be exact, Jay. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, here's a fun nugget. Uh, At that point, I think they held the record for number of total cars in a film. They had 103 wrecked cars that they totaled. Uh, 60 of them were police cars that they bought for 400 bucks a pop. Nice. Just get them running enough to run it into a wall. Yeah. And, and they had a 24 hour body shop to put the cars back together so they could reuse them. <laughs> that, no wonder the budget in this That's movie amazing. was insane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just just yeah. the effects alone. <laughs> Imagine how many cars they would have gone through if they hadn't tried to put them all back together. Oh, th- no. There's no there's no way they At could do it. At least quadruple that for right. sure. And they and they had what? 40 different blues mobiles each built for a different thing. Like one yeah. for jumping, one for speed, one for crashing. Yeah, it wouldn't hurt anybody. Yeah, the stunt driving in this is is pretty impressive. Top notch. Yeah. yeah, it really is. But I love how they they're going to the orphanage, and I I couldn't I I couldn't quite catch what he was saying because I again I've only seen this movie once before watching this review, and I was like, what is he calling her? And he calls the head nun the penguin, and I'm like, well, I mean that's not inaccurate but it's also kind of disrespectful but it's also sort of cute i mean it's it's funny and then they give her the name sister mary stigmata and i I lost my stuff on that i was like okay that's now i know where i am like this movie has pulled right into crazy town now i don't know if it's because of this movie or if it had been around before this but uh growing up in a catholic neighborhood and knowing kids who went to catholic school who were taught by nuns they often talked about the penguins okay But, but this was you know well after this movie came around so maybe they got that from this movie i very well could could have been but i don't know i I just as someone who grew up in a place where there weren't a lot of catholics and things but there were a whole lot of what reverend james brown is uh, in here i found it funny that two catholic boys go to like the ame baptist church to get inspired to save the catholic orphanage that humor is not lost on me as again where i grew up in north alabama you throw a rock and you hit one of three things a local bank a gas station or a church or some denomination on every corner and uh i 
have been to churches with uh, folks like Cleophas James and uh, have seen that. And let me just say, when you go into that church, you're going for a while. It's not a nine to ten thirty service. You are there from oh, yeah. eight till about four o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> you're there till he's done. <laughs> so, can we talk about this church service and how yes. incredible it is, and how Please. like, all right, so. James Brown must have gotten to the Coke supply for this movie because he is just <laughs> all over the place. He's he's sweating like crazy, which is James Brown. Just that's his thing. He's yeah. sweating like crazy. I he's there's no way they wrote him dialogue because this is just James Brown improvising James Brown. And then they rip into the and then they rip into the gospel performance and Chaka Khan starts singing. Yeah. Which, man, just, I didn't know that was Chaka Khan until, like, this time I watched the movie. Because I was like, man, that uh, that soloist is really good. And she's, like, blowing James Brown off the stage. It's like, oh, well, that's why. It's Chaka Khan. Jeez. Yeah. Like, no offense to James Brown. Like, I wouldn't consider him this premier vocalist. He's a yeah. performer. He's an entertainer. And he, I mean, he's, when he sings songs, they have a unique flavor. But, you know, like, he's not hitting every note or whatever but he's not trying to either he's putting on a show and it is a big show and what i'm realizing i'm watching this is the reverend that eddie murphy riffs on in coming to america both versions is totally a riff on this version of james brown like i'm like oh eddie eddie totally ripped this off like completely oh that's funny i hadn't even thought about that until now yeah but it's been a while since i've seen coming to america I mean, yeah. It's, I mean, you think about it, and I'm, also some of the bands too. It's very much like sexual challenge, everybody. Like it's uh, the same thing. It's that half of that movie is a riff on the Blues Brothers. I, I really think it is now, and I would have never thought that until watching this again. I'm like, oh yeah, that inspired this. And you know, it's fun to go back to stuff like this though and realize that it's the origin of so many things. But I love the the sister Mary Stigmata though, because and I can't remember the name of the actress. So if either of you know, just throw it out there. But this woman always plays this same. <laughs> like character she's like the overly angry school teacher nun person in the dmv you know something like that like the worst nightmare to run into in customer service is this lady and i i love her and what i get a kick out of is that the orphanage you know is behind in taxes or whatever i'm like well you know that's not the worst setup you can have for a movie because it would have been something that was on front of everybody's mind in 1980 because um much like now inflation was out of control (laughs) so nobody had dough to spend on anything her name is Kathleen Freeman, and she did like eleven movies with Jerry Lewis. That's like, that's the face you know. Then yeah, she was like one hundred percent the uh, Margaret Dumont of the Jerry Lewis movie, and yeah, she's amazing. And also that effect where they just make her float <laughs> after she pushes so after she pushes Jake down the stairs. <laughs> it's just so good. Well, I love where like these are grown men and she's still going to whip them <laughs> like they're kids. Um, and they had to scoot up in the desk chairs. Yes. That was so the physical. I mean, I'm just going to throw this out there right now because we haven't really landed on it. But the physical comedy in this movie, very, I mean, it's John Belushi, 100 percent. But I know we've done. Uh, we had a Mark's Madness, I think, was that last year? Yeah, but there are yeah. a lot of real Mark's moments in this movie, too. Great pull. Yeah, I didn't think about it. You said it, but yes, very much performers 
inspired by the Marx Brothers. And you can almost say like all of that era, SNL in particular, is very much a Marx Brothers kind of riff. And in addition to being all the counterculture and everything that they were trying to do, a um, lot of Marx Brothers. Yeah, for sure. That's a that's a good call. So, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I love the, the, again, they go to, to the, uh, the church and Jake gets hit by the uh, Holy Spirit or lightning or something and that's where he knows what to do and he's glowing and i'm like i mean it's kind of weird too to think like like this isn't far from his end it's like john belushi's already playing a ghost of himself it's a little little crazy <laughs> uh, but but it's i love it. it's like we got to get the band back together and i mean like okay the inciting incident whatever this is supposed to be to get the the road trip because i think in this at its core this movie is much like a Marx Brothers movie or a lot of other comedies, right? It's a, it's a buddy movie and it's a road trip and we got to get from point A to point B to C and collect all the pieces. And I don't know, it's, uh, it's, it's fun to watch this go because again, it's not unlike, you know, Seinfeld and maybe even something like Curb Your Enthusiasm or any of those shows. They're really not about anything. It's just sort of the getting to the different pieces that make it fun to watch. Like Spinal Tap, I mentioned earlier, movie's not really about anything. It's just getting to the different plots and, and goofy things that those guys get themselves into that makes it fun. Well, that's the thing, right? It 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 apes the Marx Brothers like that because the plot for the Marx Brothers movie was just a setup for gags. All they want to do is get to the next gag. In this movie, they want to either get to the next gag, the next musical performance, or ideally both. Because the the amount, there's very few straight performances in this movie where it's just somebody doing music. But there's a lot of music that is also funny and charming and captivating. Like, aside from like John Lee Hooker, who's just basically playing John Lee Hooker, um, that's the setup, right, to get you to Ray Charles, to the Ray's Music Exchange. You know, the soul food restaurant is set up to get you to have Aretha Franklin yelling at Matt Guitar Murphy in a hilarious fashion and yelling at the Blues Brothers in a hilarious fashion. And to get the most mileage out of these performers who aren't who aren't actors, but who are charismatic because they're performers. Yeah, and that's, and that's what I wanted to ask both of y'all. What did you make of the way that the band gets put back together? Because it's not like a hard thing to do. It's just they got to go get all the pieces and and mesh them together. And I, I don't know. I got a kick out of each one of those little side hijinks adventures that they had. I love the white toast and four whole chickens <laughs> fried. And he knew immediately who it was. I like that whole process of getting the band back together and the... I can't remember one of you guys can throw it out the name of the band uh, that the other band member joined and they had that pink car. Murph and, and the Magitones. Yes. And they spray painted, they crossed through the Murph and the Magitones and put like spray painted blues brothers on this great car. It was the whole process was, was perfect. And the music each song in some way, Ron, you touched on this already, moved the plot forward, which is essentially what a musical is. It's when the songs move the plot forward. So they they used what they had to get to where they needed to be. What the genius touch of that, I think, in this, though, is unlike musicals where the songs are written specifically to move the plot forward, like you're watching Hamilton or, you know, Tick, Tick, Boom or whatever, you know, Dear Evan Hansen, whatever you want, a West Side Story, they're moving the plot forward. These are existing songs that we're now writing a plot around in some way to move the plot forward. That takes a very Kind of like Mamma Mia? 
Yes, thank you very much. Yes, it's, it's <laughs> a rock of ages, you know, maybe in a lesser degree. But, you know, th- you're taking existing stuff, existing art, and then working your story around it. I think that takes a special skill uh, because you have to not only interpret what is there, you know, with Soul Man or any of these other songs that are getting played and figure out how can that drive the next piece forward. And um, Ron, you hit on something there. And I think it was, it was a great point is that none of these people are actors. And I don't think John Landis is an actor's director. I think he just puts interesting people in front of the camera and says, just do stuff. And then, you know, takes later and editors later, they come up with this and it's pretty neat. Like I would love to see that longer cut or the, the outtakes of this. Cause I can imagine how much celluloid was on the floor trying to put this thing together. Yeah. I mean, the blues brothers band, like as an actual band, they are legitimately like an all-star band. It's like three fifths of Booker T and the MGs. You've got a bunch of guys from stacks. You've got some of the best session musicians working. You got the best guys from the Saturday Night Live band back in the seventies when that meant something. Like there, even like the guy who's the most a performer, uh, or most an actor, who is uh, Mister Magnificent Alan Rubin, the guy who plays the trumpet. Yeah, who, yeah, yeah. Who is yeah. A comedy actor, or uh, no? Excuse me, it's Murph from Murph and the Magic Tones. Yeah, he is a comedy actor who also can play keyboard, and he had to take the Paul Schaefer role from the Blues Brothers band because. As they wouldn't let him be on the, the movie. Yeah. But but they find a way to use all these guys uh, to a way that, like, I knew a hooker named Minnie Mazzola. <laughs> and, and <laughs> just, like, the one or two throw-off lines that the guys get, like, especially Donald Duck Dunn gets some of the funniest lines around Bob's Country Bunker. Yeah, I mean, you, you've got horn guys from Blood, Sweat, and Tears in here. You got the guitar players from Stax Record and Sam and Dave, Soul Man. You got Isaac Hayes and the Barkays in there, which the Barkays are like a personal Dan Aykroyd favorite thing. He put them in so many movies. Spies Like Us is probably the one that, if you remember anything about that movie, you remember the, the Barkays Soul Finger is like this huge plot point in that ridiculous movie which is actually a really good uh, spy thriller oddly enough uh but uh go back and revisit if you hadn't done it lately folks but uh yeah it it's neat to watch what you can imagine is dan Aykroyd and a lot of alcohol and possibly some cocaine and a stack of 45s next to a typewriter and just just sort of dishing this out one piece at a time and i mean i don't know that I mean, aside from the substance part, that actually sounds like a fun time. Like sometimes I will do that. I'll take my old 45s and just sit there and just one at a time, just randomly pick a bunch together and put them on the little spinner where they'll just drop and just listen to just the most random stuff. So back before, I, I know I could just shuffle it on iTunes, but it's a lot more fun to do it that way because I'm old. Shuffling on iTunes isn't the same. No, you gotta, you got to have the physical touch of vinyl. And yeah, uh, Belushi and Aykroyd were both obsessed with all these old, 50s and 60s R&B and soul and blues musicians and that's why they reached out to so many of these people to get these people in this movie even when the movie studio was like you're not going to get a wide audience in to see Aretha Franklin and James Brown you're not going to because one of the things one of the reasons they ran into a lot of problems with this movie which still ended up making like 115 million dollars was that a lot of the record a lot of the uh, theater executives particularly uh, the guy who owned a bunch of the theaters in the West coast was like, we're not going to run this in the white part of town. Cause white people aren't going to show up for this because it was so heavily predicated on knowing all that old soul music, knowing the, the stacks record stuff, knowing the bar K's, knowing Booker T, knowing Sam and Dave, all these guys. 
that are musical legends, but may not have been the thing people were listening to in 1980. Yeah. Just to put a finer point on it. Like if this movie was released today, it would, again, it would cost about $80 million to make. It would have made almost $400 million for a comedy. Are you kidding me? Like, there's no way like that funds an entire studio for years. And it was one of the first movies to make more money internationally than it did in America. Did not know that. I feel like that music is a little more ubiquitous now, though. I mean, everyone is familiar. I I don't want to say everyone, but I feel like a majority of people, at least in the States, familiar with Aretha Franklin. They're familiar with a lot of the big names that were in that movie. Also, Aretha killed it she was a boss in that scene in her little slippers and i don't know if you noticed that i was like my granny wore those slippers <laughs> <laughs> yes that was a great call though yeah See, the costuming I mean, was on point it was perfect you kind of wonder if things had been different than than they were when she was around doing it like aretha could have been a good actress like she, she could have had a lot of roles i mean she tended to do this kind of stuff where she was just sort of playing herself but you can imagine Aretha Franklin would have been a, like an in-demand person to have in your movie because she's so much fun. Oh, for sure. And <laughs> she really knocks every one of her jokes out of the park. But more than that, when she's doing the singing, she's not forgetting to act. Right. Which is something that, that is hard to do. Absolutely true. And I don't think she's the only singer who also acted. I just think she did it better than anyone else in the film did. I think, I think I can confidently say that she seemed very natural doing it. And I don't know how many takes it took to get the scene, right? Maybe it took a bunch and maybe there was a lot of yelling and crying. I don't know. <laughs> maybe she got it all in one take either way. When it ended up in the movie and the final product, she was right on point. Oh, yeah. She's so much fun. That's the thing. Is, is she's got such pre- – and, and you talked about it, Ron, that you can tell everyone here is having a lot of fun being here. All the cameos. All, you know, Frank Oz is playing essentially the same guy who will play in Trading Places, the same cop, like his brother or whatever. He, just, he transferred to Philadelphia and he's still dealing with these, these malcontents. And I, what's funny is Frank Oz is probably the most inappropriate person of all of these people. <laughs> if you just get him to just talk <laughs> and stuff, but, um, he, but he, he plays it so serious. And that's what, that's what makes him fun. You know, you look at him you're like, this guy's a college professor or something, but he's not. And I mean, he, he did this kind of stuff all the time. Again, he, <clears throat> people know him for all of his, his puppetry work and all that kind of stuff, which is amazing. But the bit parts he got to play through the years, he's almost always playing some guy with a corn cob of his nose and he's just mad about everything. And that's what makes him fun. Uh, and then you've got John Candy. We were talking about that, like the parole officer, like John Candy just did this sort of nothing role for a guy who was just breaking onto the scene too out of second city. And Oh my gosh. We just, you look at this dude and you're like, this, yeah, that guy's going to be a star. Like you can just tell he just had such presence. I do the three orange whips thing constantly. I was just about to mention that. That was so. <laughs> you want an orange whip? Orange whip? <laughs> Perfect. It's the uh, finger spinning in the air for a round for the table. Yep. That yeah. That I, I have, that has become. I have stolen that and have been using it for twenty years at this point. <laughs> it's 
it's fabulous though that kind of thing and you got paul rubens as you know the snooty <laughs> guy at the restaurant that's that's a part that gets played forever they they get so many people in this movie just for one scene and it's always like a killer scene for that one guy for paul rubens to show up uh for charles napier to show up for um Frank Oz to do the thing where he reaches into his pocket and pulls out the pencil and says one prophylactic soiled. Yeah, just just for that one gig. It's killer. Yeah, it's killer. Yeah, you got all of that going. And in addition, again, they're just their whole thing is to put together the band. And I think the two pieces that I love the Holiday End band, you know, like that, that's funny. This is the, this is what a band would be doing is moonlighting at the Holiday End and having played in the band that once played at the Holiday End, I felt, I felt a kinship to home at some point. Like, I mean, like we literally had a conversation like, Guys, we are uh, we are really hitting the bottom of the barrel here with this action. Ours was the best western when oh, I was growing see? up. There you go, yeah. <laughs> or the back of the bowling alley, but yeah, yeah. essentially one in the same. Yeah, we would. I think in in our town it would have been the Ramada Inn over in uh, uh, Muscle Shoals, but right across from the Fizz. Uh, which tells you what kind of club that was. But uh, fancy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, real fancy. Let me just tell you, uh, but. Uh, yeah, I, I, that that, but it's only upstaged by the fact when they go to the honky tonk because that is hilarity. Like I'm watching that, and Ron, I don't know if you you felt this or not, but I was sitting there going like, I think someone who made Roadhouse really liked this movie and wanted to recreate that just with Patrick Swayze and one hundred percent. Yeah, there's definitely a big Roadhouse vibe. Especially down to the chicken wire around the stage. That's that's what did it for me. I was like, oh, the chicken wire and the people throwing the beer bottles at John Doe and Jeff Healy and all those guys. I'm like, oh yeah, this is that this is Roadhouse proto at this point. And uh, I love that their their answer to that is let's do some Tammy Wynette, you know, because I mean that always makes everybody happy, right? It worked for me. It was the the theme for Rawhide, which um, when I was a kid I had a bullwhip and I had taught myself to snap the bullwhip so I could do that uh, <laughs> that while singing the Rawhide theme for, because of this movie. <laughs> so I sung that theme as well, but not because of that. It was in Fievel Goes West. And so I forever yes. will never be able to hear that song without thinking of Fievel Goes West. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's perfect. Yes. that No, that that's exactly right. But, but again, they're, they're working in all this pop culture that at the time seemed dated and, and old, but now it's so, I mean, it gets so neat to go back and go like, man, this stuff is really timeless. And it just made me like, I don't know, have a twinge of sadness. Cause I'm sitting here thinking like, is anybody in 25 years going to reference anything that's on television right now at all? That's not like a period piece in and of itself. Like I can't think of anything that would just like, is anybody going to do a BTS riff in 10 years? Like, no, like no one's going to remember those guys. Unfortunately, sorry. That's just how it is. No, but yeah, that's that's a tough, that's a couple of timeless songs, and that whole setup, and the fact that I'm just sitting here thinking they played those two songs over and over again for the entire night, yeah. and people didn't storm the stage and murder them because they were that good at it is, <laughs> is really that, funny. Is that really the only two songs they played the whole night? Well, Do they open think? with they open with Rawhide, then they go to yeah. Stand by Your Man, and at the end of the night they're closing. With Rawhide, so I don't think they knew any other <laughs> okay. songs that would fit. Yep. I 
I remember seeing uh, Todd Snyder in concert once, and he talked about singing at weddings. He's like, look, weddings are easy. I sing, uh, you know, some love song, Proud Mary Twice, and I get the H out of there. You know, and I'm like, yep, I get you. Because I played a one of my bands once, we played, oh, gosh, I can't remember what the tune was now. Oh, no, I do. We played Louie Louie, which every, you know, college bar band, whatever, played. Well, we played it early. But then we realized the crowd probably was not aware that we had already dropped that one. So we just played it again. And some dude all was like, man, y'all saved that. We should have brought that note earlier. And he was dead serious. And that's, that's when I realized, like, don't burn your good songs early, man. <laughs> save, save them for when they're happy. Or or uh, they do realize it was played before and don't care. I experienced also, that at a wedding recently. Yeah, the five uh, camera deltas probably <laughs> were that way, Lynch. You're probably right. Well, when I saw Stroke Nine, they played Little Black Backpack, and then they played it again as a uh, an encore song. <laughs> yeah. I saw the country band Lone Star once and they played Amazed three times. They dropped it about halfway wow. through the set. They did it at the end and they said, one more time. We're like, no, that's once was enough. Give uh, the people what they want, Jay. I mean, I guess. I don't know. I I, I see a lot of, a lot of musical groups uh, coming through the, the area where I grew up and stuff. And some of them better than others with what they would, they would drop on you. Um, I saw a cheap trick once and they refused to play any of their hits. And that was a huge mistake because the crowd turned oh, on them. Yeah, they, they were trying to play some newfangled stuff. And we're like, eh, no, just come on. Give me give me something good. And then we all left. But anyway, there's that. We haven't talked about the fact that the uh, the freaking Nazis uh, are part of this movie as well. Um, it's not easy to work Nazis into your comedy movie, but uh, lo and behold, they've figured out a way. <laughs> yeah. Well, a few years ago, there had actually been a lawsuit regarding the Illinois Nazi Party wanting to have uh, some sort of parade or something. And the city that it happened to tried to shut them down and they lost the case in the Illinois state Supreme court, or maybe the actual Supreme court and the Nazis were allowed to, to do their thing. And that's why this is in that movie. Like wow. this is literally a thing that really happened, except nobody drove a car through them and ran them <laughs> off the bridge. Yeah. That's uh wow. That's a shame, but yeah. good on them for, <laughs> For letting us all live that catharsis of seeing them drive a car. Right. Yeah, and nobody right was nobody was killed because nobody gets hurt in this movie. Yeah. But it's very yeah. cartoonish and that everyone is humiliated. Exactly. You, you mentioned that with all the explosions, and we gotta talk about mysterious Carrie Fisher, who is constantly trying to blow these people up. I felt this whole like kinship to Looney Tunes and particularly like the Wiley e. Coyote. And Roadrunner Looney Tunes are some of my favorites because there's no dialogue in those. It's just all the hijinks. And these two loser blues brothers like are indestructible because they're on a mission from God or whatever. And that's that's what's funny is that that's a played as a joke. But if you watch the movie in, in its literal context, no, apparently they are. <laughs> like they literally can walk through fire and nothing happened to them. And you know it's a mission from God because none of the people who come across them would get hurt either. Everyone's like getting – it's like the A-team when a van would flip <laughs> over and blow up, but yeah. everyone would come crawling out of the wrecked van. Or better yet, from my childhood, G.I. Joe would shoot down Cobra all the time, but there was always that parachute out. Like, everyone, nobody got hit. Like, everyone was like, nope, uh, just the equipment. It's okay. We're just blowing up billions of dollars of equipment. No problem. Yeah, and throughout the movie, no matter what's happening – everyone ends up okay. I mean, except for their watches, their watches do get stopped. True. True. 
But what about Carrie Fisher here? And like you say, she's not, she has barely any lines. She's just sort of a presence, but she makes such a mark on this film. It is unbelievable to watch her. And again, I try to think about what audiences at the time would have known her for to watch Princess Leia trying to blow up the Blues Brothers at every turn because she's the jilted ex fiance. I, I was, it was awesome. I loved her in this. I, I love her character because she is such an elegant character. She moves very well. She has these like well manicured fingers, perfect hair, perfect makeup, really nice clothes. And then she's just going to go blow some stuff up. And it's just so it's a point of interest. And I think immediately from the first time, it's like, okay, well, obviously one of them's her ex. We just don't know which one. And it's one of those, and we've done this a couple times throughout this film where it's like, oh, this other movie kind of took from that. I don't know if either of you have ever seen the movie Coffee and Cigarettes, but there is this one scene where, or this one vignette where there's a woman just smoking and drinking coffee and she's flipping through like a heavy arms catalog. And I'm (laughs) almost a hundred percent positive that that character was based off of Carrie Fisher's character in this movie. You know, I never put that together as many times as I've seen coffee and cigarettes. That's, that's, I think you're onto something there. That's that my theory, and I'm sticking to it. I, I think you can make a good argument for it, for sure. So, but she's also the catalyst, because once she finally you know, tries to shoot him with some M16s and stuff like that, they survive it. Jake lays out like the lamest excuses <laughs> of all time for her. But she goes for it, and she helps them escape to the Bluesmobile so that they can go, and you know, they made money from the big gig and stuff. I, I do want to talk a little bit about the performance, like all the musical performances when they finally do get the band back together and they're not just screwing around in the honky tonk and stuff like that. It's pretty neat to watch Aykroyd and, and Belushi get in front of what, what you rightly called Ron an all-star R and B band here. And neither one of them can sing. Aykroyd can kind of play a harmonica a little bit, but they're not bad. They're actually pretty good. It's, it's one of those times when I, I'm trying to think of a good example right now where I've seen a band where the band is amazing. The vocalist isn't so great, but the band is blowing them away. And I don't know it's, it was just cool to see. And I think it, it had to be fun for these two guys who were big fans of this kind of music to get to do that stuff with some of their heroes. Yeah, I think you're onto something with it. It's just you don't have to be good. You just have to be energetic. And it's not that they're bad. I mean, they had a hit record before this movie came out. Uh, so there's something there. You don't have to be great. But when you've got that band behind you, like it makes average sound incredible. I do want to talk about just for a minute before the band actually plays or while they're waiting for the Blues Brothers and um, uh, blanking on the name, but he sings Minnie the Moocher. Curtis. and they Yes. And they have the whole outfit change. And I mean, I'm assuming, I mean, that's very cartoonish, but I think that was meant for us to see like, this is how he feels singing it. Cause he hasn't performed in so long. And I just thought that was such a nice touch to, to be like, yeah, this, this might be his last time on stage ever. And he's just going to eat it up and have a good time and really feels like he's in that big band mode. And then it cuts and they're all like just in their regular clothes again. 
it is like something out of like those magical moments of like Wizard of Oz kind of stuff, right? Like you just sort of get carried away into something else and then you flash back and it's all just the same. Or like I, you know, Grease did this, you know, uh, with uh, Grease Lightning in particular. Like the guys are yeah. just in the in the um, garage uh, fixing up the old beat up car, but all of a sudden they're transformed and they all got on their you know jackets and they're greased up and they look great, you know. And then at the end of it, they're back in that crappy garage. But it's sort of like that fun play acting part. You're like, Oh, we just saw their fantasy come alive. Like, I love those kind of things in movies. You know why, Jay? Because music is transformative. Yes, yes. Well, look, <laughs> I, I I grew up with that kind of imagination, too. Like, I just, before you could just realize anything uh, because uh, of cool technology, which is fun, by the way. I don't mind that. But it was neat to just sort of imagine what that looked like, you know. And, I mean, I would be sitting in my buddy's basements and our bands jamming out. And we would, we really hit it when everything was really cooking I mean, it was fun because you were like, man, yeah, we're going to blow them off the stage. All four people that are watching this, but whatever, you know, if, if the song was tight, the song was tight. And the Dan Aykroyd dancing, the spaghetti legs. <laughs> I don't the, think I realized how tall is Dan Aykroyd? Do you guys, he looks tall when he's dancing because those I mean, legs a, just. He's over like six feet tall, which in yeah. Hollywood standards means he's huge. So yeah. like he's, he's a pretty tall he's much taller than belushi was and most of these these guys so which is is fun to to see it's also like the way he can kind of run in place without like actually moving and doing anything and again the head never moves the face never changes it's just i don't know i i think he is again such a such a neat presence in there and uh yeah again you know he's he's over six feet tall so he's going to look big on on screen next to anybody uh, which you know, like John Goodman's like six four, so imagine him, you know, up there moving around and stuff. So those two guys are, are really big by Hollywood standards. It's funny because in high school, me and my friend went as the Blues Brothers for uh, Halloween to school, and I am six one. I'm the same height as Dan Aykroyd, and he's like six four. So, th- so like the height difference actually worked out. We were just both way taller than yeah. the Blues Brother we were supposed to be. That's that's perfect. Yeah, no, I, it is a lot of fun to watch them blow through all of this stuff. And then to get to the end, too, it, it is a great scene where Steven Spielberg, I think, is the county tax assessor or whatever, just sitting there just doing you know a favor to his buddy Landis. And they get him the dough, and then literally the entire army shows up to, to arrest these people. And I don't know, it's uh, it's a fun scene. And I love how it ends, though, with them doing Jailhouse Rock. That's one of my favorite Elvis Presley songs. It's one of my favorite Elvis movies. It's actually one of the ones that actually has a plot uh, to it. Um, and it, that's just a jamming song. And they do a really great rendition of it, too. And it's it's a lot of fun. We've got Joe Walsh. It's one of the prisoners in the crowd acting like a crazy person because he actually is one. And all that. I, I thought that was a great ending to a fun movie that had been a, nothing but a ride at this point. One of the things I like most about this Cab Calloway, uh, the Cab Calloway Mini the Moocher sequence is how you mentioned it. It feels like a cartoon, like that's what's in his head. And he was referenced like quite a bit in Looney Tunes in this very kind of setup because he had a hit with Mini the Moocher in 1931. It was a number yeah. one hit. And yeah. he had had number one hits every decade from 1931 until literally the seventies. And this movie probably brought many of the Moocher back in a big way for him too. Cause he lived into the two thousands. Wow. Yeah. And was oh. still 
fairly performing fairly well as far as I know up until then. I think it's funny to think about a lot of the classic Looney Tunes, like what we all reference and know all the time, were made from like 1940 to 1965. <laughs> like they were old when we were kids, and but they still work and they were referencing stuff again from decades before. It's, it's very, and again, you're talking about something else, the Marx Brothers influence. They could have sued Fritz Freeling and Chuck Jones for all the, the Looney Tunes through the years if they'd have figured out how. The Looney Tunes and Bugs Bunny, truly an educational phenomenon. I mean, how many people are familiar with the Barber of Seville now, thanks to Bugs Bunny? Exactly, right? Like so many different things. And I, well, again, you, we, we spent days on all the stuff the Looney Tunes brought into popular culture and, and from eons ago to bring bring you forward. But I mean, how, how many times do you People talk about like, I'm going to love him and pet him and call him George. It's the same kind of thing, right? It's, you remember the big monster. And so, uh, and the way Bugs sets him up. So if you, all you know for Bugs Bunny, y'all, is is Space Jam, come on. Like, Lizzie and I did Space Jam. That's fun, but th- that's not even like good Looney Tunes. It's sort of B-grade. But it was still a good episode, so go back and listen. It was, yes. Go go into the archives and check it out. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's much better than the LeBron one. Sorry, we're not going to do that one. But uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, so. But it's uh, yeah. weird, though, that, that you mentioned the Looney Tunes in this, because this did, for the music that was contemporary to the Looney Tunes, this did that for what the Looney Tunes did for stuff from the 30s. Exactly. Yeah, in the it, sense that this soundtrack was a big deal. And, like, mm-hmm. the Blues Brothers were a huge deal. And, like, they brought so much attention to all these mostly forgotten, like, soul singers and R&B guys that, that deserved it. Yeah, totally. And I mean, again, it, nobody, we know now because I think there's a whole culture of people like my age, Ron, your age, even yours too, Lindsay, that know what liner notes are and bothered to read them. And you, you've kept up with these people. Like the, I call it the behind the scenes of everything. Like we've just sort of grown up with that as part of our culture. But beforehand, nobody knew who these people were unless you were in the biz and you were just one of those, like you read every little, you know, liner note on the back of your, your LP, which nobody did in the day you know these guys were until you saw this and then it like i say it just reintroduced all this music to people to an entirely new generation who then passed it on to their kids and their kids i mean i i was walking well no i was running in a half marathon and they had bands stationed along the the route and one of them was playing friggin' soul man and i was like i mean i laughed because i we were getting ready to do this episode and i was like huh Oh, well, they're still doing that one. And it, it was, uh, it was, it wasn't as good a rendition, but those guys weren't too bad. It was freezing out there. I'll give them credit. They probably couldn't feel their hands, but, uh, but I, I got a kick out of that. You know, the, the, oh, yeah, that's, that's still a thing because of that skit and this movie, you know, like that's what people know it for. And she caught the Katie was my cousin's go to karaoke song. See, there you go. My cousin did karaoke because of this movie. <laughs> Whatever it takes to get someone to do karaoke. <laughs> this movie made it happen. Good on your cousin. Exactly. Well, I think we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to answer that uh, question in the beginning. Is this culturally significant? Does it matter? And more importantly, what's the popcorn rating for the Blues Brothers? Ron, let's go with you. Oh, man. Yes, this is culturally significant for all the reasons we've talked about and many more. Um, and not necessarily because of the cultural significance, but I'm going to give this an extra large popcorn because this remains one of the best car chase, car wreck, car action movies that's ever been filmed. It's a great musical. It's full of great incidental music, and it still remains really funny. 
So I can't not go with an extra large popcorn for this movie, which despite being filmed at the height of the cocaine frenzy, did not suffer from cocaine pacing because it is sharp and it, it, it it's sharp, but it's not rushed. There's plenty of space for stuff to breathe. They don't step on laugh lines or, uh, or, uh, you know, physical takes. It, it's great, man. This is a, just a top notch movie. Lindsay. I agree. It is culturally significant for so, so many reasons. Let's even, I can't, I can't put all of the, the, the cameos aside, amazing music in it, amazing singers in it, great actors in it. The comedy was informed by so many great comedians before it, and it informed so many great comedians and movies after it. It is timeless, and I am also going to give it an extra large popcorn. Yeah, I gotta say, I'm I'm disappointed in myself that I've only ever bothered to watch this movie twice in my life. That's gonna get fixed because I've listened to the soundtrack for years. This movie is so much fun. It's just fun, and it it was so fun to put this on and watch it and realize. There's no big conspiracy. There's no big plot. There's, I don't have to unwind this like Tenant or something like that, which is a movie I love, but you have to put a lot of brain into. I can just watch this and just let it flow over like a nice, warm, you know, cup of coffee while I'm listening to some of my favorite tunes. And it, if I want a musical, I've got it. If I want an action movie, it's here. If I want physical and dialogue comedy, it's all here. Uh, in a great package. And the fact that it's over two hours long, that's another bold choice for a comedy. Most comedies like 90 minutes get in and out, right? Nope. This one, it just, it just goes on, but it never gets boring. And that's the the highest compliment I can pay a comedy is that it, I'm never bored with it. It's always a ton of fun and it's definitely getting back in the rotation more than, you know, 20 years in between for sure. So this is, uh, this is definitely a, an extra large popcorn and a lot of fun. And it was a lot of fun talking about it with you two here as we get ready to wind up 2021. This is sort of our kickoff December. This isn't a secret Christmas movie in any way uh, possible. I looked cause I thought maybe it is, but it didn't, didn't appear to be one, but uh, more fun stuff coming up as always here as we get into the end of the year. One more big episode uh, for the end of the year. Can't wait for you to get to hear that one, folks. Uh, Ron and I uh, recorded that with Jerry from Totally Red Christmas so a while back. And uh, there might be even a special surprise as part of it. That's all we're going to say. It was kind of a tease in the biz, gang. But uh, you got a big one coming up uh, here at the end of December. And then we'll be we're back with more episodes again in 2022. As always, you can find more episodes of the podcast at filmstrippodcast.com. That'll take you to our anchor distribution site where you'll find all the places you can find the show. Please share the show with others as it helps other people find us. Follow us on social media at filmstrippod on Instagram, Twitter, and filmstrippodcast on Facebook. We appreciate your support. You should check out Ron's writing over at Den of Geek, all kinds of great stuff, whatever you're into, whether it's American Horror Story or some version of The Walking Dead, The Walking Dead, Dancing the Blues Jig, whatever it might be, he's going to cover it. Thank you so much for being a part of this show, and we'll talk to you again soon. Until then, keep dancing and keep smiling. Thank you for listening to Film Strip. Thank you for listening to Film Strip. 
You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.